Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Harriet's Riddle Book. For this episode, we are so excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Lynn Festa. Lynn is a professor of English at Rutgers University, where she teaches 18th century British and French literature. She was the North American Scholar Plenary Speaker at the 2014 Montreal Jazzna, where she spoke on the noise in Mansfield Park. She has written on a wide range of topics, including slavery, human rights, sentimental literature, narratives recounted from the point of view of things, cosmetics, wigs, and the 1796 tax on dogs. Her most recent book, Fiction Without Humanity, Person, Animal, Thing in Early Enlightenment Literature and Culture, examines how 18th century definitions of humanity were elaborated through riddles, fables, novels, scientific instruments, and trompe l'oeil paintings. Welcome, Lynn. We're so excited to have you. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. It's a good day if you get to talk about Austin. Agreed. We agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) So for today's episode, we are looking at Emma again. And at the point in question in the novel, Emma and Harriet's friendship is well established, and Emma is assisting Harriet with her riddle book. So the quote is, The only literary pursuit which engaged Harriet at present, the only mental provision she was making for the evening of life, was the collecting and transcribing all the riddles of every sort that she could meet with into a thin quarto of hot-pressed paper made up by her friend and ornamented with ciphers and trophies. In this age of literature, such collections on a very grand scale are not uncommon. Miss Nash, head teacher at Mrs. Goddard's, had written out at least 300, and Harriet, who had taken the first hint of it from her, hoped, with Miss Woodhouse's help, to get a great many more. Emma assisted with her invention, memory, and taste. And as Harriet wrote a very pretty hand, it was likely to be an arrangement of the first order, in form as well as quantity. <laughs> I love that. Making a mental provision for the evening of life. Uh, life, yes. This is the thing that she will pass down for generations. Yes. <laughs> well, this is like big scrapbook vibes, right? Major scrapbooking. And I mean, also, right, it's like, this is Emma's idea of education, right? She's improving Harriet, (laughs) right, by asking her to just copy a bunch of poems from other books, basically, and gather them from other people. The specific word assisting her with taste. It's like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Yes. Well, it's a jaw-dropping division of labor, right? Because Emma is providing the invention, memory, and taste, and Harriet is just penmanship, right? right? I mean, like, <laughs> this, is, this is not exactly an equitable distribution of labor. I think that's the way that Emma likes things, though. Like, like make it look pretty, but make it reflect all of my things. Who's the driving force here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we really get into all the questions about riddles, just a couple of definitions for the listeners. So if you heard me say quarto, that was a large book, smaller than a folio, but a large book folded into quarters. The hot press paper, that was a fine paper, smoother and glossier than other available paper. It was developed by printer John Baskerville for fine books and and this sort of elegant ladies book, I guess. (laughs) And then my favorite, the ciphers and trophies were like decorative letters, initials, ornamental decoration designs like that you could kind of copy into your book. Very much Regency scrapbooking for sure. (laughs) It's like getting some texture on that page. Yes. (laughs) Love it. Well, Lynn, we'd love to talk to you more about riddles because I know that you have so much to say about this. And I really want to kind of start off by asking you. So so in Emma, there are a lot of different types of riddles that are described. There's enigmas, charades, conundrums, a couple other things that are mentioned. Could you explain to us a little bit more about what riddles were in this period and maybe even discussing some distinctions between these categories? Sure, yeah. 
riddles have been around for eons, right? Since Oedipus and the Sphinx. But in the 18th century, they actually take off. Like you wouldn't believe they become really kind of commonplace forms of entertainment. And there are a lot of different books that are published, breaking them down into different kinds. Now, it's not a strict taxonomy. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap in what, what's one person's enigma is another person's conundrum. <laughs> but there are kinds of loose distinctions between them. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that in the 18th century, riddles tend to be much more extensive than what we would think of as a riddle today, right? What's black and white and red all over, that, you know, staple of childhood riddledom. That's not really how they are. They're much more extensive. They tend to be long, multi-stanza poems. They are often in the first person. And they're describing in the first person the experience of maybe an everyday object or a concept or an emotion and inviting the reader after reading this extensive, estranged description to name what it is that they are. So there's some commonalities with the modern day version, but it's not entirely the same. Our one-line riddles are closer to what the Regency would have called a conundrum, which are riddles with punning answers. They're very short and abbreviated. Mr. Weston's two letters that describe perfection, mm-hmm. M-A, right, Emma, is described as a conundrum in the text. And of course, not everyone finds that conundrum <laughs> equally gratifying. <laughs> there are also anagrams, which are Regency Scrabble, as you described them in a previous podcast. So that would be words like Dixon and Blunder, right. <laughs> working on those. And there are also other kinds of word games, including acrostics. And at Box Hill, Mrs. Elton, you will recall, humble brags about having an acrostic written about her by an abominable puppy. <laughs> and an acrostic, right, they, these are all kinds of mashup genres, but an acrostic has lines of individual riddles that need to be resolved. And then the first letter of the solution for each line would spell out the solution to the riddle. Okay. And these, of course, are kind of complicated, right? In the sense that they put a woman out in the world, right? Mrs. Hmm. Elton is bragging about something that actually moved her name, her reputation into the public sphere, albeit in this kind of disguised form. Sure. Right. So on the one hand, it's sort of showing that she's she's a person. She's a you know, she's a real personality. She's a mover and a shaker. But it's also a kind of risky and dicey proposition. And I think that that's part of the thing that's so important about word games is the way that they're allowing things to be talked about, but talked about indirectly. Right. So we also have rebuses. And we're all familiar with visual rebuses, right? And those existed then where you would have a picture of something, say a you, like a female sheep, and that would mean you, and you would spell out an entire Mm -hmm. pictogram message. But there are also, and this is far and away the most popular mode in Emma, there were also what might be thought of as linguistic rebuses, and those were called charades. And charades are not like our modern charades where you acted out, you know, performing actions. That that would be a development much later in the 19th century. But charades were, in fact, one of the word game forms that are unique to the period. They were, they were invented in the 18th century in France, home of scandal. Of course. <laughs> and they come over and, you know, become a huge thing in Great Britain late in the century. And charades involve an enigmatic description of a syllable of a word, and then you put the two syllables together to make up the solution. And we see that in Emma with woman and with courtship, Mm -hmm. the two famous charades that Mr. Elton puts together for the puzzle collection. Right. I hadn't actually thought of like 
verbal rebuses. That's like blowing my mind, actually. <laughs> it all just sounds like a lot of work. You know what I mean? But they didn't have TV. <laughs> I, I know, right? In an era before Netflix, what were you going to do during those long evenings after Mr. Woodhouse was done describing the gruel? Acrostics and chill, you know? <laughs> exactly. Acrostic and chill. Wow, that is... <laughs> How you really get someone to come over on it for a warm <laughs> evening. And <laughs> let's do some acrostics, baby. So, Lynn, in your work, you described riddles as an 18th century equivalent to today's memes. Can you tell us more about why riddles would have been so popular in Georgian England? I mean, it sounds like the fact that there was nothing else to do might have been part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're, they're a kind of respectable, you know, and sociable way to while away the hours in mixed company. But they're also something, right, as we see in Emma distinctively, right, they could be hijacked for, you know, ulterior purposes for the passing of encoded messages. They're always knife edging back and forth between kind of public and private forms of communication, I think, in ways that are really central to what, what Austin thinks they're doing. You know, word games became more prevalent in part because of growing literacy, right? A lot more people were able to read. And also because of, you know, a growing amount of leisure time available, especially to middling classes, right, to the middling sort. They're very complicated, I think, as social dynamics. Their contests, they're playing out all kinds of different relationships between the people, you know, in a kind of social setting, but they're also creating a kind of common object that generates a community, right? Generates a sense of, of a collective undertaking. I think you can see that with the riddle book, which is sort of like, I don't know, the equivalent of an 18th century yearbook in some ways, or oh, yeah, an 18th yeah. century yearbook with everyone contributing things. So they're a way of kind of binding people together. I think they're also, you know, become very popular because they're a sort of respectable way for a woman to show her wit. They're a, a model of a certain kind of intellectual quickness. They're a manipulation of language, but they're sort of bracketed as casual as not too serious. And so in a sense, they allow one to advance one's adroitness with language without perhaps attacking anything too real or getting at something that's going to rock the boat in any particular kind of way. So do you think that women were maybe a little bit more prone to do, to like really hone in on riddles as a pastime? Like, is there, is there a gendered component perhaps to that, do you think? Absolutely. There's a, there's a gendered component. Women's nat magazines tend to feature large numbers of riddles, for example, in one issue. And then women would write in the solution to the riddle in the next, often in these kind of elaborate poems unto themselves. So they wouldn't just write in the answer. They would write, you know, a verse reply to all of the different riddles in the previous issue. They're complicated though, right? On the one hand, they're this sort of respectable form of wordplay. They're quite fun for women to engage in. They're also though connected to humor, which is often connected to kind of low culture and to bodiness. And men's magazines often also featured riddles. And some of those riddles were decidedly louche, were quite <laughs> vulgar. And including the riddle that referenced by Mr. Woodhouse, Kitty, a fair and frozen maid, um, which maybe we can come back to a little bit later. But part of the reason that in the passage that you read, they're so emphatic about this question of the politeness of the riddles was that it was quite possible that a riddle might come from a sort of unsanctioned source and contain the kinds of material that one wouldn't wish to have the delicate eyes of ladies exposed to. Heaven forbid. <laughs> Heaven forfend, exactly, right? And, and there's this kind of repeated notion that Mr. Elton is giving the politest of the riddles right. to them. And that really does reflect the disquiet about the origins of riddles and whether they're coming from these slightly more suspect domains. 
And I love that you mentioned that about Mr. Elton too, because Emma actually draws attention to the fact that like he has to like stop and be like, what are the most appropriate and praiseworthy riddles? The subtext behind that now is Mr. Elton probably has a bunch of dirty jokes that he could be telling, but he has to like sort through his Rolodex exactly. of, <laughs> of jokes and be like, which ones can I actually tell the ladies? Yeah, there's like a lot of repression going on there for this one. And the, the one that he kind of retrieves from his mind eventually is a totally trite and very cliched riddle that everyone already knows. And Emma is sort of embarrassed to have to remind him that they've already put it down in the book. This woe man, woman, enigma, yeah, which is so cliched. I would like to see Mary Crawford's riddle book is what I'm thinking now. <laughs> Salacious. <laughs> so in, in the novel, Harriet is aspiring to write a book full of, of riddles. And of course, she's imitating Miss Nash, which I think Harriet subtly wants to do that with like every woman she admires. She's trying to imitate Emma. She's trying to imitate Miss Nash. So about this idea of full riddle books, would this have been common practice? This, this like, let's make a riddle book thing? Keeping a commonplace book was obviously a long-standing practice in the culture where people would copy down, you know, important or significant passages into a book for private consumption. But what we would now call scrapbooking was, of course, very popular during the period. And, and this is certainly an example of that. Although interestingly, just interesting fun fact, the Oxford English Dictionary lists riddle book as, with a hyphen as coming from Emma. Oh, trendsetter. So has her place there. Yeah, she's a trendsetter. You know, most of what I've come across have been actually this sort of the collections of riddles and word games that were churned out by the press at the time. They were, you know, sort of small book, pocket-sized books with names like Delights for the Ingenious, The Trial of Wit, The British Gesture, the whetstone for dull wits. That's my personal <laughs> That's fantastic. Right. And clearly people are, I mean, part of the thing about this is you're sort of borrowing wit and humor and bringing it and flipping it open after sitting across the fire from somebody for a really long time with absolutely nothing to say to them. <laughs> it's clear that a lot of wit has to be borrowed during these periods. And those particular books tend to be largely plagiarized from one another. So you see the same riddles over and over and over again, which is part of the reason that there's not only like not a lot of originality in Harriet's project, there's not a lot of originality in the field that she is endeavoring to mine. Right. I mean, which kind of makes sense when Emma's just immediately, yeah, we already have that one. Exactly. Well, I think it's interesting too, that, I mean, like, because in that opening quote that we had where where she talks about like, in this period of literature, in this age of literature, like, so like, she's positing riddle books as a form of, of literature. It's, it's a genre that she's like diving into. So these whetstones for, for dull wit, that, you know, it's a genre that, that maybe we're addressing here. You know, I, very much so. And, and like I said, it also makes its way into periodicals, into miscellanies, right, into all of these other forms of literature that especially women would have consumed. And so there's something I think going on about the contrast between Emma, who is so ready to solve these riddles and these incredible painful struggles that Harriet has to get to the far side of what they are, that's also crucial to part of what Austen is doing in putting these in there. She wants to display some of the some of the ways that the forms of wit I, I don't think she I don't think Austen is actually condemning riddles by any means. She often has characters who disapprove of different genres that she, of course, herself and her family engaged in. And her letters are absolutely riddled with, sorry, pun, <laughs> are, 
absolutely riddled with references to word games and other kinds of entertainment that the Austins engaged in. So I don't think there's a, a condemnation of riddles, but I do think that there's a kind of commentary on the way one might borrow a sense of one's intellectual superiority from a genre that maybe isn't all that. <laughs> mm-hmm. In your work, Fiction Without Humanity, it really explores how riddles are essentially objects that speak to us as if we're human. That's kind of a, a, a crucial point to the way that you explore riddles. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that concept plays out in the two full riddles that Austin provides us through Harriet's riddle book and maybe even Mr. Woodhouse's scandalous Scandalous riddle, yeah. Part of what's so interesting about both the riddles that are included is that they demonstrate the fact that Emma is not a great reader. She solves those riddles very rapidly, but she kind of misses the point of both of them because she thinks that the answer is the point of the riddle when in fact it's the way the riddle is written or what the riddle is about that it is really significant. She's missing context clues. She's missing a lot of information, yeah. So the first riddle, right, which is my first doth affliction denote, which my second is destined to feel, and my whole is the best antidote that affliction to soften and heal. My first doth affliction denote means woe, which my second is destined to feel man. And then the two parts get combined, right, in this notion of woman. First of all, it's an incredibly cliched riddle. So he's giving us a kind of hackneyed version of what womanhood might be, for one thing. It's got this kind of unctuous and over-solicitous aspect to it. And it's a sentimental performance in the extreme. And it's a kind of reminder in that way of Mr. Knightley's hint to Emma that Mr. Elton may talk sentimentally, but he's going to act in a completely other way. And she doesn't really, you know, kind of construe it in that way. She she gets that it's trite and she's sort of regretful about the fact that he doesn't... Step up. Yeah, step up. Exactly. <laughs> But she's not really unpacking what's going on with that riddle. The second riddle, I think, is even more interesting. Part of what's going on in this one is really, really fundamental. It's labeled to miss dash blank. And then the first stanza is, My first displays the wealth and pomp of kings, lords of the earth, their luxury and ease. Of course, that refers to court. Emma gets this right away. Another view of man, my second brings, behold him there, the monarch of the seas, right? We've got ship. So we've got courtship. And of course, this first stanza, right, betrays Mr. Elton's real investments in money, in wealth, in prestige, right? The Mm -hmm. the very fact that he's couched things in these terms is itself like a fundamental clue about his priorities, right? It really tells us a lot about what he's thinking about. But ah, united, what reverse we have. Man's boasted power and freedom all are flown. Lord of the earth and sea, he bends a slave. And woman, lovely woman, reigns alone. And we get to this notion, right, of women on their own. And of of two positions that men can possibly assume, right? On the one hand, they are kings and monarchs. On the other, they are slaves. There is no sense of any kind of equality of union, of any kind of equity of partnership. The very way that he has constituted courtship in this leads to a consummation that's really devoutly not to be wished in many ways. (laughs) And then, of course, we've got that final stanza, thy ready wit, the words will soon supply, may its approval beam in that soft eye. And we have all of Emma's contortions to make that fit Harriet, right? right? And Harriet not, of course, being celebrated as a ready wit at any juncture in the book. It's really hard to cram her into that pigeonhole. 
But I think that what's so important about that, right, is that Emma actually solves the wrong riddle. She thinks the riddle is courtship, but the real riddle is what should go in that blank to miss so-and-so. Right. And so we have this long dash that is really the core mystery, and she completely misses the point. And in her kind of preening complacency at the rapidity with which she gets to the answer to the riddle, she disregards all of the ways in which she's not looking at the proper evidence. She kind of misses the way that a riddle formulates a different kind of mystery in her confidence that she's gotten the point. She reads it as if, you know, Harriet, Miss Smith should be the answer. You know, the entire riddle looks completely different the second you fill in that blank with Miss Woodhouse. So, you know, there's a sense in which answering a riddle recasts everything that has been described from a different angle. And that's something that Emma as a novel as a whole does repeatedly. So there's a sense in which our interpretation of these early riddles or our interpretation of Emma's misreading of them is offering to us in small Emma's entire relationship to the world, right? The way she kind of has this excessive confidence that she's read things correctly and she has the answer. And yet she's she's answered the wrong question. I think that that also, you know, because the opening sentence of Emma like tells us that she is clever. That's indicative immediately. She's clever. And so I find one of the things that's so fascinating about the novel is that because she's so clever and yet she's missed like the whole plot of the novel has changed halfway through. We were talking about how you, how riddles are kind of like memes. There's a current meme going on where it's, people are using the, the audio where it's like, what happened to the original plot of the movie? And that's kind of what's happening throughout Emma in a lot of ways, where she's she's so confident she's got things locked down. And, and then she has to constantly rediscover that she has no idea what's actually going on. So the book becomes its own kind of riddle book in a lot of interesting ways. I mean, she's she's clever and clueless, right? To go to another to another movie, right? Oh, and perfection! Yes. One of the things I was thinking about rereading Emma in the context of riddles is that you could, in fact, read Miss Bates's monologues as riddles because oh. they contain clues to everything that actually is happening, and we don't think to ask that question because we don't understand that they are in fact ciphers, right? That they bear within them the key, right? Part of what's so fascinating, I think all of us feel this about Emma, is that you read it for the first time and it's delightful, but then you reread it and all of a sudden all of these stray details become clues, right? So that we all become detectives along with Mr. Knightley with his hair hat. <laughs> But we all become detectives recognizing that things were in fact clues to a riddle that we hadn't yet detected as an overarching question. So there's so much about the novel. I think you're totally right that it is a riddle and the people in it are riddles as well. Jane Fairfax is actually referred to at one point as a riddle by Emma. And so that sense that are you asking the right questions about the people extends from the poems that are construed and misconstrued by the various characters to the ways that they constantly are, are using people as the answer to the wrong question, right? Because almost everything is about misattribution, right? They think the wrong person is in love. They're right about the plot. They've just plugged the wrong Barbie doll into the play. Right. Know? Well, the Jane Fairfax example is, is so perfect because just like, you know, in this riddle from Mr. Elton, where Emma completely misses the point that it's not to Harriet, it's to her. It's the same thing with Jane Fairfax. Like you said, her wit is so quick and she figures out these riddles so fast, even if she misses the point. And then here's somebody like Jane Fairfax where she can't figure out super quickly. She's like, oh, I don't understand what is going on behind those eyes. 
I don't know what she's thinking and I don't trust it. And it's because like, oh, she's a riddle that you can't solve. And you're really frustrated by that. Yeah, she wants to to resolve people into kind of knowable forms, right? And there are so many lines in the novel where people talk about wanting to know what other people are thinking, right? I mean, that's the impetus behind some of the wordplay at Box Hill, right? Is that initial demand by Frank that everyone tell what they're thinking that then turns into this game of saying clever or dull things. But there's something I think really important about that notion that she wants a linguistic equivalent to what the person is <laughs> in order to put them in a kind of box. So we've mentioned a third riddle. It's a riddle that we don't get in full in the novel, but we get Mr. Woodhouse being like, oh yeah, there's this one riddle about a maid and kitty. And, and it's left kind of like, it's just left there. But Austin is like embedding that for a reason. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the fair and frozen maid? So this too, right, if the woman charade offered by Mr. Elton was well known, so too would Kitty Affair and Frozen Maid have been at least to a certain constituency. So this was a poem written by the actor and playwright David Garrick. It was published in 1771 in one of the less reputable miscellanies of men's humor. (laughs) The other... Contributors were members of Sir Francis Dashwood's Hellfire Club, right, uh, which is, was a libertine collective, right? At least some of the other contributors were, um, not all of them. I know it from many a historical romance novel. So. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a staple. And the poem was reprinted rather frequently, usually in these kinds of men's riddle books, you know, these books of men's humor, but also sometimes in boldlerized form. But a reference to this would be a little bit like, I don't know, maybe dropping reference to Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Uh-huh. Like, like knowable, I think, I think, to that degree, right? To those in the know, if you, you mentioned it, they would know what was going on. And Jill Haight-Stevenson has written about this quite wonderfully, about this riddle. You know, and the, the question that one asks is, how much did Jane Austen know and when did she know it? And how much do the characters know and right. when do they know it? I'm going to read just the opening lines of the poem and then talk about the double interpretations of it. Kitty, a fair but frozen maid, kindled a flame I still deplore. The hoodwinked boy I called in aid, much of his near approach afraid, so fatal to my suit before. So the anodyne version of this opening lines would be somebody lighting a fire or perhaps a kind of anodyne version of romance, right, of love and Cupid. But the other understanding of it was actually a reference to a prostitute giving the speaker of the poem syphilis, or perhaps giving a certain inflamed part of the speaker syphilis. So this is a really quite complicated reference to have in a Jane Austen novel, depending on, you know, how much you think of the, you know, rears and vices, where you go with those questions about humor. She only includes a stanzas, but it was reprinted enough that at least some of her readers would have recognized this. Part of what Austen is clearly having fun with is the fact that Emma and Harriet cluelessly have put it in their collection on the second page. So given it a very prominent place, (laughs) presumably naively, one also presumes that Mr. Woodhouse does not recall the full context of the poem. It might be part of Mr. Elton's hidden riddle book. So he might have (laughs) actually had a sense of this. And part of what Austin is also having a really good time with is that she, Emma says that she got it from Simus Knox's Elegant Extracts. 
which was a kind of cross between the Norton Anthology and Reader's Digest, but it was very respectable, right? <laughs> Elegant Extracts, the full title. I'll just read you the full title because it's so great. Elegant Extracts are useful and entertaining passages in prose selected for the improvement of scholars at classical and other schools in the art of speaking, in reading, thinking, composing, and in the context of life. That's one of them. Elegant extracts or useful and entertaining pieces of poetry selected for the improvement of youth in speaking, reading, thinking, composing, and in the context of life, being similar in design to elegant extracts in prose. So there were two volumes, right? You could just learn how to be elegant. So the idea that Emma somehow unearthed Kitty Affair But Frozen Made from, you know, the assorted gems contained in elegant extracts is incredibly unlikely. It does not have the good housekeeping stamp of approval, and it it just is not likely that she would find that poem there. So the whole thing is incredibly risque, and the fact that Austen has, has had Emma unwittingly incorporate this poem into this collection is such a sort of fascinating, it registers in a really fascinating way, I think, Emma's blind spots, but also the complex ways that more serious questions about sexuality and the consequences of sexuality sometimes course beneath the surface right. of various moments in her novels Absolutely. in ways that are often really not fully acknowledged. I mean, even think about the moments where Jane Fairfax talks about what it means to be a governess. And I, I think, you know, Emma, like many of Austen's later novels, starts to have a much wider panorama than some of the earlier novels in registering the very grave consequences of the social structures that she might otherwise look like she's just validating. One thing I just have to add about the riddle is that even the like authorized solution, chimney sweep, right, which is the okay answer, is actually really problematic because that was a slang term for sexual intercourse. So no matter what your- The innuendo is just there always. It's just there always. You cannot escape it. Yeah. I like to think she put it in there for the Prince Regent, you know, as part of her dedication to him. (laughs) Jane Austen's like, he'll get this. He'll get this. I love that. So you mentioned that it's unlikely that this would have actually been an elegant extracts, even though that's what Emma attributes it to. So contemporaneous readers would have definitely been laughing at the idea that she would have found this riddle in that particular book. If they knew the riddle, right? If they recognized the kind of fuller context of the riddle, they would actually unravel, I I think, the whole thing. And certainly Jill Hate Stevenson thinks, and, and a number of other critics have written about this quite wonderfully. But my strong sense is that Austin is quite cannily nesting that in there as, a, as an inside joke, right? As something yeah. for us, an Easter egg, if you will. Right. I mean, I, there's also been a critical discussion about whether this is suggestive of the possibility that Mr. Woodhouse was a libertine in his youth and that his infirmity is in fact a result of venereal disease. And that that's quite a controversial claim. You know, again, regardless of whether way you interpret that, whether whether you think that Mr. Woodhouse was like a rake in his a youth. rake in his youth, and then he's recalling this this joke benignly to his daughter. That's funny in its own right, but then it's also equally funny if he's just like the guy who doesn't get the joke, and he's just like, "Oh, I remember this thing," and he just innocently passes it on, but he has no clue of the subtext that he's just handed his child. Like either way, that that joke lands beautifully. It's quite wonderful. And this kind of self-contained, the idea that self-contained texts become vehicles for things that so far exceed 
what we know, I think is so central to the kinds of circulation of things like riddles or word games that, that operate as memes. They're doing work that exceeds what is evident just from a superficial reading. Yeah. What was so interesting to me about rereading the novel with riddles in mind over the last couple of days was that riddles estrange what's familiar and they kind of expose how hard it is to see what something is when you think you already know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so Emma, everyone, not only Emma, actually, I think Emma sometimes gets demonized as the big maker of mistakes and everyone is deluded about who likes whom and is making matches that are not actually correct. So so I, I don't want to, I think I'm asking her to carry too much weight, but there's something to understanding that you don't understand something that that a riddle is trying to encapsulate, but I think is really at the heart of Emma's education, that part of what she has to learn is what her quickness leaps over, that the riddle is actually in small encapsulation of some of the things that Austin really wants to convey. And the other thing is that when you solve a riddle, right, you you name the thing and then you go back and you reread the book and it all makes the riddle and it all makes sense, right? Everything coherently falls into place. But in Emma, that intelligibility, right, that idea that you have the breakfast cereal decoder ring Mm. is almost always wrong. So I think that part of what Austin is really interested in is the kind of surplus that the answer doesn't really, to a riddle really doesn't give you. But I think that's connected to some of the work being done by free and direct discourse in the novel, Mm -hmm. where you've got this other voice coming in to articulate things to which characters are blind, to which readers are blind, and to which even in a strange way, the narrator sometimes seems to be blind, right? That's part of the fact that we don't know the whole story the whole way through. There's a one moment in the book where she says, seldom, very seldom does complete truth belong to any human disclosure. And I think that that's... That is kind of the epigraph for the text, even though it's nested in the middle. It is so fun just to think of the whole novel as a mystery. It all like thinking about riddles and especially thinking about people's riddles always makes me think about that scene where Frank Churchill supposedly been fixing the rivet on the yes. spectacles for like <laughs> Yes. It's the groundhog day rivet. <laughs> it's like you can just imagine him unscrewing it, screwing it back in, unscrewing it. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, Granny has completely fallen asleep in the corner. Like, what have you and Jane been really getting up to over there? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, well, they've been putting the wedge under the the piano. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? I mean, it's like, look, there's a piece of paper under there. It took us 30 minutes. It took a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) Complete massive project. Hilarious. Oh, my God. Well... Lynn, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to meet with us and chat with us about riddles. Is there anything that you would like our listeners to know about any any work of yours? I know you're not like a huge internet person, so but I'm not. I I have no no internet profile. Actually, I I wanted just to take this occasion to say there's so much fabulous work on riddles and give credit to some of the people who've Great, done it. Fabulous. Mary Chadwick, Jill Hate Stevenson, Joe Litvak, Francis Ferguson, and Susan Allen Ford, who have all written Excellent. beautifully and brilliantly about these. I may have missed people. I'm sorry if I neglected anyone. Thank you so much for this for an opportunity to talk to you guys. I love the podcast and it was just such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Delightful. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you again so much to Dr. Lynn Festa for taking the time to come on and chat with us about Harriet's Riddle Book. 
You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can find us on our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and you can email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for next episode where we'll be talking about Catherine and the Black Veil. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.